And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Later this week, on Thursday and Friday, September 28th and 29th, Carthage College is hosting its second Lincoln Symposium, in which it will welcome several prominent scholars to the campus of Carthage to discuss the remarkable life and legacy of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. The public is welcome to attend any of the sessions of the symposium. They are all free of charge. And advanced registration, while preferred, is not required. For the full schedule of what's going on with Carthage's Lincoln Symposium, uh, you're encouraged to go to carthage.edu slash Lincoln symposium. The keynote speaker for this year's symposium is none other than Ronald C. White. He is speaking on Thursday evening uh, at 7.30 p.m. in the Campbell Student Union Auditorium. I have had the great pleasure and honor of speaking twice to Ronald C. White on the morning show. And we're going to be replaying those conversations today and tomorrow on the morning show. Today, you're going to be hearing the first interview I conducted with Mr. White. It was back in 2006 with the publication of his book, Lincoln's Greatest Speech, the Second Inaugural. In this book, Ronald C. White does a beautiful job of setting the stage, helping us understand the difficult context within which Lincoln wrote and delivered this speech. And he also examines in painstaking detail the words that Lincoln chose, the turn of phrase, uh, to say exactly what he wanted to say in exactly the right way. One of the greatest speeches delivered by any politician ever. You have uh, taken, a, as I say, a moment, really, from, from Lincoln's career and, uh, and, and chosen to uh, write a, a marvelous book around that, although, of course, you explore all kinds of, of wonderful background material and so on, on the Civil War, on Washington, D.C., on Lincoln's earlier career. But what led you to write an entire book about one uh, brief speech by Lincoln? In 1993, the Huntington Library, where I work in Pasadena, uh, mounted a wonderful exhibit on Lincoln in conjunction with the Illinois State Historical Society. Uh, I attended that exhibit and was at that time teaching at UCLA. Like every American, I suppose, I had a fascination with Lincoln, but I had never taught anything about him. I had the option of teaching a senior seminar, and I thought, well, let's try this. I'll teach something on Lincoln and the American experience. And I was fascinated how much I enjoyed it and how much my students, my young students, enjoyed it also. And as I got into teaching this course again and again, I came to this marvelous address. Uh, I think it was within the next year or two that I visited one more time the Lincoln Memorial. And there I saw the Gettysburg Address on one wall, the Lincoln Second Inaugural Address on the other wall. And I thought to myself, my goodness, this is such a wonderful address, but it's really lived, kind of in my words, under the shadow of the uh, Gettysburg Address. In no way diminishing the Gettysburg Address, I think this address needs a much fuller examination. Well, and you have certainly uh, grabbed our attention by entitling your book Lincoln's Greatest Speech. Well, uh, yes, uh, I must give my editor, Alice Mayhew, credit. In some ways, she's the one that sort of pushed for that title. Uh, it certainly uh, gets people asking the question, well, I thought the Gettysburg Address was. Uh, but Lincoln himself said this. Eleven days after he had given the address, 
in response to a congratulatory letter from a Republican politician in New York State, he replied, I believe this is my best effort. And then in a, in a very interesting continuing phrase, he said, but it's not immediately popular. Mm. And uh, so I thought, let's explore this. Why did Lincoln think it was his best speech? Why was it not immediately popular to the public and the press? And and I was off. <laughs> and right. I couldn't stop. <laughs> right. And it does remind me, by the way, if, if I'm not mistaken, Lincoln's magnificent Gettysburg Address uh, also did not create much of a stir, if I understand. That was a very brief address, and uh, some other much more long-winded speech, it seems to me... Uh, had more immediate uh, impact at the, on that occasion. You're absolutely correct, uh, uh, Greg, and and perhaps for some somewhat different reasons, we do we may forget that Lincoln was not the main speaker that day at Gettysburg. He had come as the president to offer what in the program was called dedicatory remarks. So no one expected him to necessarily speak the one hour that Edward Everett spoke. But yes, that speech was also not immediately popular and not fully understood or appreciated. Hmm. I think one reason why uh, I have had uh, uh, an interest in the second inauguration and, and one reason why I was so particularly thrilled to, to, to see your book uh, is because of that uh, marvelous photograph, or actually a couple of different photographs that occur, that, that exist of the occasion, which take in that, that grand spectacle of the crowd on the steps of the Capitol and so on. Uh, and I'm sure many of our listeners have... Uh, maybe know the photograph that I am talking about. Uh, talk about that just a little bit, that photograph which uh, appears actually on the cover of your book. Yes, this is the only photograph by Alexander Gardner that we have of Lincoln delivering an address. And so it's particularly dramatic. And uh, the cover, the, the photograph is on the cover, not the full photograph, so that inside the book one gets the full photograph, and as you sort of span, uh, go upwards away from Lincoln, there in the photograph is John Wilkes Booth. And so the drama of this Wilkes Booth standing about 40 feet away from Lincoln 41 days before he would assassinate Lincoln. And uh, I suppose you have heard the speculation as well that it may be below the figure of Lincoln, down on sort of the ground floor, uh, some have speculated that some of those uh, tattered-looking figures are some of the uh, conspirators of Booth. I believe that's true, and it's interesting how many times in the last few days as I've been speaking about the book, people have made exactly the same point that you have. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the context of this uh, occasion. And uh, you, you really paint us, first of all, a very vivid picture of the State of the Union, literally, uh, on this occasion, the 4th of March, I believe it's the 4th of March, yes. uh, 1865, uh, with the United States uh, approaching the end, but having not yet quite reached the end of the, the terrible Civil War. Give us a sense of, of, of America at that moment. Well, one reason I did this, I, I took some time and care to paint the context. What I want to do is to try to bring the reader right to this dramatic moment. We know that the Gettysburg Address is dramatic. Lincoln's coming to speak at the end of this epic battle. And, uh, but I think we've forgotten how dramatic is the context of the Second Inaugural. Let's remember that the nation is only 76 years old. There had not been a president re-inaugurated in 32 years since Andrew Jackson. Uh, 
amazing that there is an election taking place in the midst of a nation torn by civil war. Uh, on Lincoln in August of 1864 had been told by his Republican advisors that there was no way that he could be reelected. In fact, he had actually written a memo to his cabinet. They didn't see the full memo, but they signed the envelope that it was in, saying, when we are defeated for re-election, this is what we must do to cooperate with the new president. Uh, then there are rumors about that there will be an attempt by de desperate Confederates to either abduct or assassinate the president. So there are sharpshooters on all the roofs surrounding the uh, inauguration. There are plainclothes detectives going through the crowd. There are Confederate deserters. They actually kept count. There were 1,239 Confederate deserters that had arrived in Washington in the month of February. So all of this together makes this an extremely dramatic scene. One of the things I particularly enjoyed in your book was uh, how you helped uh, paint the scene of Washington, D.C. itself. And uh, I guess I had maybe known some of this before, but had had utterly forgotten uh, what what a simple city Washington D.C. was in those days. It was not not one of our largest cities, not one of our most modern cities, and uh, and uh, in particular, you quote some comments about uh, from Charles Dickens about uh, what Washington D.C. looked like to to the casual visitor. I lo I love Charles Dickens' comment. I, admittedly, uh, almost two decades earlier, but uh, he in quite satirical language, described Washington as spacious avenues that begin in nothing and lead nowhere, streets mile-long that only want houses, roads, and inhabitants, public buildings that need but a public to be complete. <laughs> the city of magnificent intentions. intentions yes. <laughs> and then, then a Philadelphia visitor was irked, if you want to be disgusted with a place chosen for the capital of your country, visited in the springtime near the close of four days rain when the frost is beginning to come out of the ground whatever other objects of interest may attract your notice the muddy streets and pavement will scarcely escape you all through the week before the second inaugural it had been raining 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 and that morning a tremendous wind came through the city just uprooting trees hmm. that's right the, there was every possibility that uh this inaugural address uh, might have been given indoors rather that, than outdoors to the that's, general public. That's correct. They had prepared for an indoor ceremony, and only at the last moment did they feel that they could go forward with an outdoor ceremony. And maybe at this point we should mention uh, that dramatic moment when Lincoln rises uh, to speak. Yes. This, uh, I, in preparing this book, I, I, I read many, many newspapers to get the details of the event, but I also tried to find as many diaries as I could. And at first I did, wasn't sure I was going to include this, but every single diary tells this story, and people talked about it for decades afterwards in the midst of this terrible weather. Just as Lincoln began to speak, the clouds parted and the sun came out, and people at the time believed this was a marvelous sign for Lincoln and for what was going to come for the nation. We are speaking today with author Ronald C. White, Jr. He has written a book called Lincoln's Greatest Speech, the Second Inaugural. Mr. White, one of the things you describe uh, in, in uh, beautiful detail is uh, the inaugural parade. Uh, give us some sense of, of the spectacle that was uh, a, a part of that. 
Well, first, in, in those days, the parade came before the inauguration, not after the inauguration. And so this was a grand event. There were all kinds of different floats. Again, the rain kind of worked havoc with some of these floats. And for the first time, and this was very memorable, for the first time you had uh, African-American regiments, soldiers marching in the parade. What was uh, kind of funny was that uh, uh, that they went to pick up Lincoln uh, with a full uh, escort of marshals, and Lincoln wasn't at the White House. He'd gone up early to sign some bills, but Lincoln's carriage came forward anyway in the parade, and people cheered wildly not realizing that Lincoln was not in the carriage. And someone, one of the newspapers reported it, said it was like the play, only without Hamlet. Mm. Mary Lincoln, uh, maybe typically, she got into the parade, and then the parade got stopped for 20 minutes, and she got so annoyed that she said to the driver, pull the carriage out, let's go some back way to the White House. So Mary Lincoln wasn't in the parade either. Wow. <laughs> you described some of the uh, different floats that were a, a, a part of this uh, spectacle, and you also talk about something else that was an element of, of splendor on that day, and that is the new Iron Dome of the Capitol building. Yes. Uh, uh, when Lincoln served one term as, con as a congressman in the late 1840s, the dome of the Capitol was a wooden dome. And by the middle of the 1850s, uh, the decision had been made to tear this dome down and to build the uh, Capitol again in a very kind of ornate style that was uh, then prevalent in Europe. Well, then the, the war came, and uh, the construction stopped, and many of the men who were working on the construction uh, went to serve in their various uh, regiments uh, in their states. But Lincoln was the one who made the decision to let's keep the construction going forward, and it was literally a symbolic decision that one day he said, we will all sit again under this dome. To stop the construction is, in a sense, to admit that uh, the Civil War, the South, has been able to stop the Union. To keep the construction going is to say the construction is continuing and the Union is continuing. One of the stories you tell in your book, uh, I think we're already getting a sense of what a fascinating story this is, even before we get to Lincoln's actual speech. That day was a day, of course, as so often political occasions are, uh, probably filled with speeches, but two in particular that you talk about ahead of Lincoln's inaugural address, uh, one by the outgoing vice president and one by the new vice president. Both really were, were, were interesting moments for very different reasons. Tell us first about uh, the, uh, the, uh, the address given by uh, Hannibal Hamlin. Well, Hannibal Hamlin had been chosen uh, in 1860 to balance the ticket of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln, the man from the West, from Illinois. Uh, Hannibal Hamlin had been born in the very same year, 1809, in Maine. And uh, he was a former Democrat from New England. Uh, and uh, the vice president was not, uh, however, a very powerful job in the 19th century. And so he felt in some ways that he was not being consulted by Lincoln, probably was not. Lincoln, in some ways, kept his own counsel. So he began spending increasing time away from Washington. And in 1864, he even served two months of uh, garrison duty with the Maine Coast Guard. 
so he offered his address, and we're not quite sure if he was pretty uh, upset that he wasn't any longer the vice president, but it was a rather perfunctory uh, address. In those days, the vice president did offer a, a regular ad uh, inaugural address. But I think the most amazing address was the one offered by Andrew Johnson. Johnson had been chosen by what was then called in 1864 the Union Party. Uh, we, there's some debate about this, but it seems that it's not sure that Lincoln chose him, but he rather allowed the party to chose him. So Johnson from a border state, Tennessee, is preparing to give his address. He had been ill. He traveled up from Nashville. At about 45 minutes before the address, he took a glass of whiskey to steady himself. Well, as he moved closer to the Senate chambers where the address would be, he took a second glass of whiskey. And just before he entered to give his address, he took a third glass of whiskey. Mm. Well, <laughs> his address was a rambling address that was three times as long as Lincoln's address. And uh, the Republican members of the uh, cabinet were absolutely uh, apoplectic when they began to hear his address. Uh, Navy Secretary Gideon Wills, Wells leaned over and said, the man is certainly deranged. Uh, he then turned to uh, Stanton and said, Johnson is either drunk or crazy. And so this address created quite a stir and a deep embarrassment for the Republican Party. And I think one of the most dramatic moments you talk about is uh, when Lincoln himself apparently leans over to uh, a senator from Missouri and whispers to him, do not let Johnson speak outside. Yes, Lincoln must have been mortified, but in his own wonderful way, uh, he refused to criticize Johnson and, and afterwards said, Andy's a good man. But, but I can just imagine that when John, Lincoln did say, do not let Johnson speak outside. Johnson, of course, was right there. To, we, he's clearly visible, as is uh, Hannibal Hamlin yes. uh, in, the, in the famous Garner photograph. Uh, hearing as, as Lincoln does deliver his address uh, outside. One of the points that you make in the book is that there had not been a second inaugural address in quite some time. Yes, this is the, the audience all understood this, and I, I think we've forgotten it, that in a nation 76 years old, there had not been a second inauguration in 32 years. So probably the audience might have a hard time uh, trying to remember who were the presidents in the 1840s and 1850s, not a very distinguished group, uh, often not really the leading person in their own party. So now Lincoln is elected in 1860, not the leading person in his own party. He doesn't lead on the first ballot. And uh, there was much speculation that uh, there would be another candidate from the Republican Party, perhaps William Seward, elected to be the candidate in 1864. So again, very dramatic that this is the first time in 32 years there was a new president inaugurated again. Your book, much of your book, is a, a painstaking look at Lincoln's rhetoric and his command of the language, his style with words, and so on. And uh, we're going to dig into a few of those details in just a moment. One particularly interesting thing I think you do uh, in the book is when you uh, take us into, I believe, uh, the first inaugural address of Lincoln, and you give us side by side uh, what Lincoln uh, actually said and uh, sort of some suggested words from his uh, future Secretary of State, William, William Seward. Tell us about that, that, that scenario, first of all, of somebody offering advice to Lincoln on, on what to say, and then uh, 
some thoughts on on the final choices that Lincoln made. Well, Lincoln Lincoln kept his own counsel mostly. We have no record in the second inaugural that he let anyone help else help edit or revise the speech. But he did in the first inaugural, and I thought that that the revisions uh, tell us a great deal about Lincoln's rhetorical style, his understanding of words. He wrote the first inaugural in Springfield, and then he took the train, leaving February 11 for a long trip, 12 days, to Washington. He let five different people look at the address. Most made very, very minor suggestions, if any at all. But when he arrived in Washington, uh, he gave the address to Seward, who had been his chief rival for the presidency. Seward had a reputation, well-deserved, of being a fine speaker. And uh, he gave it to Seward one evening, the first evening. And the next afternoon, Seward gave it back to him, six pages of suggestions. Oh, wow. (laughs) And... uh, and, and, and many of them quite good. And, and Seward said, well, you can't use your final paragraph. Uh, we have to toss that out. Uh, with, with very with, with good uh, thinking about that, uh, he said uh, that the, the final paragraph is too partisan. So he offered to Lincoln uh, two different options for a final paragraph. And Lincoln was grateful for this option. And uh, he chose to use one of the final paragraphs. And... Uh, I think that the final paragraph, though, the reason that I lined them up side by side was that this is a wonderful way of discovering Lincoln's artistry with words. We know some of those words uh, from the, the, the final paragraph of the first inaugural. Perhaps the most memorable are these. Uh, the mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living hearth and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. But when you see it side by side, you can see that Seward had some wonderful ideas, and and they were good words, but they were not grand or great words. And you see how Lincoln took Seward's words and made them into poetry. For the most part, uh, reducing the words, but in one place, uh, lengthening the words, Seward said, I clothe." close, and Lincoln said, I am loath to close. Hmm. So here we can really watch, I think, the reason I included this, Lincoln, the rhetorical artist at work. Well, and of course, it's, it's, a, it's one principle that is all too often lost on current politicians, but, but the thought that, that less is often more. Less is more. I love to, I love to write that in the margin of my students' papers. <laughs> less is more. <laughs> Speaking of that, uh, as we look to Lincoln's second inaugural address, uh, you, you give us some interesting numbers. Uh, 703 words, 505 of which one syllable. Yes, it's just absolutely magnificent. <clears throat> and, and in saying that, I, I do not want to say that uh, some people have said, well, Lincoln is either so simple or his words are so simple. No, I, I think there's something extremely profound here. But you don't have to use big words to be profound. You also say that this is simply 25 sentences long in in four uh, relatively simple paragraphs. Uh, And we should add that uh, if people purchase the book and and open it up, one of the first things they see after the title page is uh, the handwritten speech itself. Tell us about 
uh, where you secured it and maybe tell us a bit about what we learned by, by reading the speech in this way. Well, this speech is from the Library of Congress. Uh, uh, Lincoln uh, had a habit of sort of sitting with his legs crossed and working on what we would almost call cardboard and writing out this speech in longhand. There are only several collect corrections in the speech. His habit had been to speak extemporaneously uh, and to use only notes until 1858 when he gave his first great speech, the House Divided speech in Springfield that would launch his senatorial campaign against Stephen Douglas. But for the first inaugural, the Gettysburg Address, and the second inaugural, he toiled long before and wrote these out very, very carefully. And so wonderfully we have his address. Many of his other speeches, we don't have them in his own hand. What we have are the newspaper reports. Newspaper uh, reporters in those days were literally stenographers, and so they took down the speech, but they were listening and writing quickly, and so sometimes their texts do not even agree. And so, But here we have a speech in his own hand. Now, are we to assume that this handwritten copy is what he had in front of him that day? No, I wish, and I'm, I'm now, I must put this into the, the uh, uh, subsequent edition or a paperback edition. No, he actually then had that set in type, and he held the typed uh, edition, uh, the printed edition, in his hand in two columns, and he had it arranged so that uh, they were sort of various cues to himself, words to emphasize, places to breathe. He would kind of put marks underneath the words, beside the words. This is what he held, not the handwritten version. Now, do we have that as well? We do. We do, although there is some dispute. In fact, I, yes, there's some dispute about which is the correct copy that he actually held. One of the things you mention as you begin analyzing the, the, the speech itself in, in uh, exquisite detail is, is the way that Lincoln opens and... Uh, and, and and in analyzing the, the, the tone which Lincoln adopts in, in, in his opening words, uh, you look back at other second inaugural speeches. Tell us, first of all, why you think that comparison is, is worthwhile. Yes. It, it, originally, I just, uh, tr in, in an effort to be thorough and to understand inaugural addresses, I said to myself, well, I better read all of these addresses, which I did. And then it struck me how different they were, how Lincoln's speech was so different from Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Andrew Jackson. Uh, then I consulted Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 20th century. All of those second inaugurals, with uh, not very much disguised ego, uh, have the personal pronoun I, 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 all the way through the first two or three paragraphs, in which the president, the speaker, is saying, in effect, thank you very much for your great wisdom in re-electing me. <laughs> and and I, I, I know that you recognize all the wonderful things that I did in my first term, and of course I expect to do even more grand things in my second term. And then I notice that Lincoln doesn't mention his re-election. And uh, all of the uh, pronouns point away from himself. There's three personal pronouns in the first paragraph and no more personal pronouns at all. And even when he mentions that uh, there had been a second inaugural, uh, there had been a first inaugural address, he describes that in the passive tense. It had been delivered. He doesn't say, and I delivered. 
And so there's a tone, there's a direction, there is really an hum, a humility here that is in marked contrast to his predecessors. Really, the only direct mention he makes is uh, those first four words when he says, uh, at this second appearing. <laughs> Another odd way to begin, and I, and I make the comment that there's no rhetorical flourish here. There's no four score and seven years ago. Right. It's, it's almost as if uh, in this first paragraph, he uses three words, by the way, in the first paragraph, uh, less, little, and no, which I say are ways of really diminishing expectations. He, he, he goes into great pains to tell us what he is not going to say in the first paragraph. In the second paragraph of the speech, he, of course, turns his attention to that which is the, uh, w without question, <clears throat> the predominant concern of the day, and that is uh, the, 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 the war between the states, which, although uh, rapidly moving to its conclusion, uh, is still uh, very much a, a painful reality for for our country and its and its citizens. Yes, in this brief paragraph, and I'm when I'm with audiences, I often ask them to say what is the word that dominates the second paragraph. It is the word war. He uses the, the word war nine times and the pronoun it for war two times. So eleven times he works with this concept of war. And what is he doing? I think that in this second paragraph, and I sort of uh, compare this to reading a Shakespearean play, where you often have to get to Act 3 to really understand what was taking place in Act 1, but I think the audience doesn't fully understand what's taking place in Paragraph 1 and Paragraph 2 until we get to Paragraph 3. But Lincoln is describing all of the actors in the war, the North, the South, the generals, the soldiers, he himself as president. And the war is historically and grammatically the direct object. Everyone is sort of propagating this war. But the more he gets into this, he himself is begun, began to understand the war has taken on a life of its own. I think he is amazed and aghast at the ability of the American people to inflict such terrible tragedy and injury on each other. And so finally we get to the last sentence, and it's the mo one of the most amazing sentences in all of American rhetoric, and the war came. Four words, four syllables, and I asked myself and I asked the reader to imagine how did he say this phrase, this sentence. And the war came with great drama. No, I don't think so. I think by the time we get to that simple sentence, I'm arguing in the book that he says it sadly, mournfully. So, and the war came. The war is no longer the direct object. It is now the subject. It has a life of its own. Right. Well, and yes, you touch on what, what, is, what occurred to me, which is that by saying it so simply, uh, it allows each and every listener to the speech to uh, take it in and, and for their own imaginations to... Uh, to paint the picture of what what this terrible terrible war has has meant for them and their particular family or their particular uh, community. Yes. Uh, as you analyze this particular paragraph, you you talk about uh, a couple of Lincoln's uh, favorite rhetorical tools, uh, and I want you to uh, to talk about uh, a, a couple of them. One of them I think we're all very acquainted with, and that is 
uh, alliteration? Yes, it, alliteration is, is the simple device of taking a consonant uh, and using it as the beginning letter in a word and then repeating that consonant uh, over and over again in a paragraph. So again, in this quite brief paragraph, Lincoln uses the consonant D, and there are eight words that he uses that begin with D, directed, dreaded, delivered, devoted, destroy, dissolve, divide, deprecated. Well, what does this do in a speech? How does this work upon the ear, hearer's ear? I, I'm arguing that Lincoln writes for the ear, and he has a wonderful sense of the sound of words, so I encourage the the reader to read the speech out loud. Don't just read it to yourself, as we are taught as children, but Lincoln always read out loud to the great uh, the consternation of his law partner, Willie Herndon. <laughs> and so Lincoln had a great sense for the sound of words. Well, what this does is this sort of builds a wonderful symmetry in the paragraph. This helps with a kind of pacing of the words. This really plays upon the ear. Now I ask, uh, did Lincoln sit down and say, well, I'm going to use alliteration. I'll use the, the consonant D eight times in this paragraph. No, but I think this was just his natural way of developing, uh, it, that it developed in terms of his being an artist with words. Hmm. You talk about another tool in which uh, Lincoln um, uses the juxtaposition of contrast in, in such dramatic fashion. Yes, he, uh, he again, almost uh, uh, not really being noticed by, by the reader or by the listener. Uh, you have to step back, as it were, to, to understand what's going on here. He's able to, uh, to have uh, uh, words or really phrases, I suppose you would say, in, in contrast. <clears throat> so that in this paragraph he says... Uh, uh, while the inaugural address was devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were seeking to destroy it without war. Saving and destroy would be the contrast. One of them would make war rather than let the nation survive. The other would accept war, the contrast between make and accept. This is a style that Lincoln likes. Lincoln has used it in other previous speeches, and again, he employs it here. We, the, the, the term for that tool is... Uh, antithesis? Or? Antithesis, yes. He uses antithesis. Uh, and again, it's, it's, it's a way of kind of organizing for the listener, as well as for Lincoln, the speaker, his thoughts. And it puts them into bold relief when you use antithesis. We should mention, uh, in, in the course of this particular paragraph, you, uh, you talk a little about uh, Lincoln's schooling, uh, which is actually fairly modest. It's very modest, yes. Uh, uh, Lincoln had one year of formal education, he said by dribbles. He probably went two or three times as a, as a young boy to what were called blab schools, uh, where you simply memorize things, and Lincoln later recalled that probably some of the students he himself may have known more than the teachers. So Lincoln is quite self-educated, especially as he becomes a young adult. He's hungry for education. He works with a school teacher in New Salem and gets a book of grammar. It teaches himself grammar. After his first term in Congress, when he's 41 years of age, he gets a hold of uh, Euclid's uh, Principles of Geometry and teaches himself while he's traveling on his law circuit the Principles of Geometry. Why? To help him further 
uh, organize his thoughts to operate with a rational process of argumentation. Uh, in 1858, a uh, uh, gentleman set out to write a history of Congress, and he sent a questionnaire to everyone who would have been a member of the House of Representatives or, se- or the Senate. We've all received questionnaires. They did so in the 19th century. And uh, Lincoln received his, and one of the questions was education. And I use a little historical imagination and say I can imagine Lincoln thought back on those who served with him in Congress who were graduates of Harvard or Yale, and when, it, when he answered the question, he did so with one word, defective. <laughs> defective. <laughs> His wonderful sense of self-deprecation. Uh, we haven't had many presidents that uh, possessed that, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful gift. It's so refreshing. Absolutely. You, there are a couple of really powerful statements you make in this particular chapter. One of them is... Uh, when, when you just kind of read it uh, the first time, it kind of sets you back a little bit. When you say, moreover, Lincoln's speeches were Lincoln's speeches. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, uh, speech writers came into being for presidents uh, in the 1920s with Harding and Coolidge. And so I think the modern person, maybe even the modern young person, is, is struck by the fact, I've often asked this question, did Lincoln write all of his own speeches? He did. And, uh, and so he, th- this is just uh, a given in the 19th century. And one of, the, one of the effects of this is that I believe that Lincoln wrote a, the speech as a whole, whereas today, if you've ever been on a committee, in a public committee, a church committee, whatever, you, you, Lincoln, uh, modern speeches are written by committee in a sense. Not, not that there aren't wonderful, wonderful speech writers, but therefore, I think the speech often doesn't read as a whole. There are long speeches today. Often they're kind of laundry lists of what we need to do, what programs I'm for. But Lincoln's speech is a rhetorical whole. One of the things you also say in this chapter is uh, Lincoln grew to maturity in a culture that put a priority on the spoken word. Yes. Uh, I think one of the great realities that dawned on me in writing this book was, first of all, that Lincoln rose as a speaker in Illinois. There were many able politicians, but no one more able as a speaker. And and therefore, in that culture, it was what I almost call an oral culture, where people enjoyed, I mean, today people are amazed that uh, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, for example, uh, one person, first Lincoln, then Douglas, would speak for an hour and a half, and then the rebuttal would be an hour. And people enjoyed this kind of oral culture, listening to speeches. We are speaking today with uh, Ronald C. White, Jr. He is the author of a book called Lincoln's Greatest Speech, the Second Inaugural, published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, As time uh, flies away from us, Mr. White, uh, we really don't have uh, as much time as I would like to uh, discuss the longest paragraph of of the the, uh, inaugural address, in which uh, Lincoln really takes on uh, some rather complex uh, issues of the day, and, and that in particular, uh, the, the plight of African Americans. Tell us what Lincoln uh, attempts to accomplish, and indeed accomplishes in this portion of the address. Well, we want to remember that Lincoln's original goal for the war was certainly to save the Union. And uh, he had a complex uh, uh, set of strategies as to, first of all, how to keep the border states within the Union. But as the war developed, uh, he more and more saw the war also as the liberation of the slaves, 
how could one have a union based in liberty when part of the population was not free? And so he has some eloquent words about slavery in this long third paragraph. And I think that this paragraph has come more into our consciousness beginning in the 1960s with the civil rights era. And he he talks about the fact that American slavery is an offense, and I argue that for the political and rhetorical courage here, at the moment of highest victory, when the crowd expects him to be talking about his own reelection, the victories of Grant and Sherman, he decides to confront the American people, and it's very important, as you've emphasized earlier, not simply the South, but the North and the South, with a great offense, a great evil, a great cancer in our midst. He says, if we shall oppose, suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war. Notice that both North and South. Mm. And then perhaps the most memorable words, except for the final paragraph, are these. Until every drop of blood drawn with a lash, slavery, shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, all those lost in battle. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said that judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. There's been a great deal of debate in the last 20, 25 years about who freed the slaves. Was it the slaves or was it Lincoln? Does Lincoln deserve all this credit or was he simply another racist of the mid-19th century? All of this often fails to understand the attitudes of all persons in the middle of the 19th century. The other most important person in my book is Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass is the great abolitionist, African-American author, editor, uh, speaker. And uh, he's in the crowd that day. He had come to the first inaugural, bitterly disappointed with Lincoln's first inaugural, much too conciliatory. Now he comes to the second inaugural, and he is absolutely bowled over by these words. We know this, and there's a story, and you want to have an independent confirmation of a judgment you make, because after Lincoln's assassination, 41 days later, communities gather all across the nation on that Black Saturday to offer eulogies. In Rochester, New York, a gathering is held. Three speakers are selected by the mayor to offer a eulogy. Douglas is in the crowd, and the crowd sees him, and they ask him to give a eulogy. He rises to speak on the platform in the community gathering, and he offers these words from the second inaugural about slavery from memory. He wow. quotes them from memory, which to me is the confirmation of how he understood that Lincoln's words about slavery were some of the most important in the second inaugural. Uh, you, you discuss a, a moment in this paragraph when, um, when Lincoln talks about uh, citizens of North and South both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. Uh, in the in the uh, section of pictures in this book, uh, you show uh, three Bibles. Tell us about that. Uh. Yes, one of the one of the most poignant parts of my research was to travel to the American Bible Society headquarters in New York City. The American Bible Society, the chief voluntary organization that was spawned in the early 19th century, immediately went into action when the Civil War broke out, and they published in the next four years over five million Bibles. Obviously, the hostilities uh, severed the National Bible Society, and soon there was a Confederate Bible Society. Well, 
they couldn't publish large Bibles for soldiers moving uh, through battlefields, so they began publishing pocket Bibles, which you could put in your pocket, small Bibles, and I held these in my hands. Very, uh, very amazing feat. Lincoln is doing several things here again, as he always does. On the one hand, he's affirming the use of the Bible. He himself has been tutored on the Bible. But then he offers this phrase, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. And he is then questioning the fact that each side could appeal to the same God and appeal to a God to give them victory against another group of human beings. And I'm suggesting here that he is challenging the notion of a territorial God, or really a tribal God, how dare we say that God is on our side? Uh, Lincoln is invoking God in this address. The Almighty has his own purposes. But he does not want to be so arrogant as to suggest that God could only be for one side and not for the other. And I particularly like uh, the words where, where Lincoln seems to acknowledge the horror of war when he says, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yes. I, th I think we have here, and, and this is a great contrast to the first inaugural, Lincoln is much more bearing his soul in this address. The first inaugural is the wonderful constitutional lawyer arguing his point, believing that if he makes the point in clear, rational terms, both sides will see. Why is this speech greater? Because there's a deep personal emotion in this, speak, in this speech. Lincoln is offering he fervently, fondly, these are deep emotional words. As we proceed to the, uh, the brief final paragraph, I think it's uh, good to say the, the single word which you use to describe it, you say that uh, this final paragraph is sublime. Yes, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's emotional again. It's not hope overstated. There's something so profound. Uh, again, one could imagine how did he say this. I think he said it softly. Uh, someone said to me, maybe almost in a whisper, uh, it, it, there, there's something here that is just beautiful. He is now speaking, asking the nation to step forward with incredible acts of forgiveness and compassion if the nation is to go forward. Do you happen to have those words in front of you? I do, yes. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. There have maybe never been more spur uh, stirring words uh, spoken by a president. I don't believe so. I think, uh, and, and the point I wanted to make also was, if this was a sermon, I suggest there is a great unvoiced therefore at the beginning of the paragraph, mm. which is to say that in a sermon, uh, the first uh, two-thirds or three-fourths of a sermon is the declaration by the minister of what God has done. That's the indicative. And then the last part of any sermon is always the imperative, what you and I are to do, and in a sense, uh, Lincoln has laid out what has been done in judgment, but also in mercy towards preserving the nation. And therefore, there is a, therefore, we are to act with malice toward none, with and, charity for all. And it certainly makes one wonder uh, how those years after the Civil War might have 
might have played if uh, John Wilkes Booth had not cut down Abraham Lincoln, and if it had been Lincoln uh, leading that uh, that difficult, complicated process of of uh, reunification of North and South. Yes, as you suggest, it certainly would have been difficult and complicated, and yet. Lincoln's attitude towards the South, and it's not a weak attitude. He wanted unconditional surrender, but then he wanted to treat the South, as he said, as if they had never been away. Mm. I think we might have had a very different story in this nation, and uh, and, and there, there, we might have moved towards a reconciliation, whereas, sadly, we moved in exactly the opposite direction. Ronald C. White, the author of Lincoln's Greatest Speech, the Second Inaugural, published by Simon & Schuster. Ronald C. White will be the keynote speaker for Carthage's Lincoln Symposium. He is speaking Thursday evening, September 28th, 7.30 p.m. in the Campbell Student Union. The event is free and open to the public. Tomorrow, more from Ronald C. White on WGTD's Morning Show.